Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. This is your destination for interviews with the finalists and winners of our annual prizes, as well as folks from the BC and Yukon literary communities. On this episode, you'll hear my conversation with Alex Olin, author of Dual Citizens, which was a finalist for the 2020 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. For anyone who's grown up as a sister or a sibling, the push and pull of the relationship between Lark and Robin, the central characters in Alex Olin's Dual Citizens, will feel very familiar. And that relationship is at the center of this book. Dual Citizen is Alex's fifth book. It was shortlisted for both the 2019 Giller Prize and the 2019 Roger Writers Trust Fiction Prize. She is also the chair of the University of British Columbia's Creative Writing Program. In our conversation, Alex talks about why she was drawn to a love story between sisters as the spine for her novel, as well as twinship, and how she found the research she wove into the book. Alex starts our conversation with a reading from Dual Citizens. I'm just going to read from the uh, very beginning of Dual Citizens. The story of Scotty's life, which is, of course, the story of my life, too, begins with my sister, Robin. It's strange how little we talk about it now. Of the three of us, I'm the only one who dwells on our history, probably because I'm the one who chose and formed it. If I bring up that day in the Laurentians, Robin says she doesn't remember much about it. I find this impossible to imagine. For me, the opposite is true, with every detail lodged unwaveringly in my memory, recorded in detail, like a film I can replay at any time. It goes like this. A sunny day in June, the leafy heat of summer at odds with my frozen terror as I stood fixed to the ground. The air thick and still as a wall against Robin's ragged breath. And the wolf my sister had named Catherine, inspecting us both with her yellow eyes. Robin was 38 weeks pregnant at the time, and she just irritably informed me that pregnancy lasted 10 months, not nine. She was angry about this, as if there had been a conspiracy to keep her misinformed. She was angry in general because she was hot and uncomfortable and couldn't sleep. We were walking down a trail behind her house that led to a canopy of pine trees, hoping the air would be cooler there. Walking was all Robin wanted to do, although she complained about this too. Her hips hurt, her knees hurt, her ribs hurt. Complaining wasn't typical of my sister, who was stoically, even savagely independent, and it worried me. We stopped every few minutes so she could catch her breath, and when we did, I watched her stroke her belly. She wasn't in other ways tender toward the baby inside her or herself. She frowned. What are you doing? Nothing. You're touching yourself, she said. I hadn't realized until then that I was imitating her, making myself a mirror. My palm was flat against my own stomach, though there was nothing to stroke. I flushed with embarrassment and my sister gave her harsh bark of a laugh. It's okay, she said. I get it. But how could she get it? She didn't live in my body any more than I could live in hers. We stood body to body, sister to sister, across an impossible divide. Then her eyes moved to a point behind my head. Look, she said. 
we saw the wolf trot out of the forest like a lost dog looking for its home. From her strange gait, one leg hobbled. We knew it was Catherine. Her gray-brown fur looked knotted and flat, her body narrow-hipped and sinewy. It was possible, we thought later, that she was searching for her pack. To me, it hardly matters. Her motives aren't my concern. What I remember is her graceless stagger and how quickly she moved despite it. How when she bore down on us, so close that I could see her eyes, I couldn't tell whether she recognized us, whether the bond Robin had nurtured with her was sturdy or significant or the slightest bit present in her mind. What happened next was my fault. The wolf ran toward Robin as if to jump on her and I pulled my sister sharply to the side, scared for both her and the baby. Robin wrestled against me, wanting to greet Catherine, I guess, or at least to see her close up. A fit of vertigo washed over me then, the sky and earth changing places, everything solid, jellied, and spun. I clung to whatever I could grasp as my vision hazed, and inside my ears was the crash and roll of some invisible ocean. I think I grabbed Robin's shoulder, but it might have been her leg. That's how disoriented I was. In the push and pull between us, Robin lost her balance, stumbled, and fell. The wolf kept going, running past us as if we didn't even exist. Slowly, my eyes cleared and the ground assembled itself beneath me. Vertigo passing is like an earthquake in reverse. Pieces knit themselves back together, the world unshutters and comes to rest. Next to me, Robin moaned a terrible keening sound. Are you all right? I said. She didn't answer. Her face was an ashy color I'd never seen before and she pressed a hand to her belly again, the gesture not gentle this time. I cradled my sister's head in my lap, but she seemed hardly to notice my presence, much less be eased by it. Her body was hot to my touch, her hair sticking wetly to my hand. Then we heard the rest of the pack begin to vocalize in rolling harmonics, whether in greeting to Catherine or for some other reason. Their silvery howls rose and fell, rose and fell. I thought it was spooky, but Robin's face relaxed and she opened her eyes. What I found wild, she found a comfort, and that had always been a difference between us. Where's Catherine? She said. I told her I didn't know. The wolf had gone. My sister struggled to sit up and I could see she was hurting, but there was no stopping her from standing. There had never been any stopping Robin from whatever she wanted to do. She got to her feet, though her knees buckled once and she had to brace herself against me as I tried and failed to coax her back to the house. Only my sister would have ignored going into labor in order to look for a wolf. Only my sister would have asked through the pain, where did she go? Thank you. Um, I heard you describe this book as being a love story of sorts. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that love story and why you were so interested in that idea for this book. Yes, I always thought of the book as a love story between uh, two sisters. Um, in Dual Citizens, the sisters are named Lark and Robin, and uh, they are very close and they're also very different. So their relationship um, has a lot of intensity to it and it's also very complicated. And the way that they grow up, they each have different fathers, neither of whom is 
very present and their mother is kind of neglectful of them and they're really left to their own devices and they really raise each other. So there's a particular closeness that comes from this semi-feral childhood that they have together. And I was drawn to the idea of sisters or siblings in general as the lifelong companions that we have as we try to develop our sense of identity and the ways in which that journey is reciprocal in the sense that you don't develop your sense of who you are all by yourself. You often develop it in relationship to or even in opposition to the people around you, right? Whether it's your parents or your siblings or other people in your neighborhood or your culture. So there's a lot to draw on there. And then in terms of just the overall structure or, um, or spine of the book, I liked this idea of the love story as a way of thinking about the importance of women to each other's lives. There's a long history of um, what we call the marriage plot in the novel, which is to say a novel that is structured around a kind of heterosexual relationship where, you know, boy meets girl, and then there ensues a series of complications or obstacles. And then the end of the novel closes with uh, a marriage or some sense of happily ever after. And that's a kind of long and storied set of, of tropes that people are, are familiar with. And I thought, well, what about the fact that for many of us, romantic relationships come and go for many of us, you know, heteronormative relationships aren't even necessarily part of our, our life stories at all. And in fact, at least for me, a lot of the most sustained and important and complicated relationships that I've had have been with other women. So I thought, well, what if you put this relationship between two sisters really at the forefront of the book? And it would be almost that same three act structure where they grow up together, they're very close. And then as they get into young adulthood, um, things kind of tear them apart. And then gradually over the course of the um, latter third of the book, they come back together and they recognize that for each of them, like the kind of closeness that they feel to the other is incredibly crucial. It's foundational to, to their lives. So that was the idea was to, um, to put this in the foreground and their romantic relationships and the other parts of their lives would be sort of in the background rather than the other way around. Yeah, I, I really liked that idea. And but also like I liked the way the relationships with men were introduced in the book because it was these like, you know, it really does stand against that whole marriage plot idea because we see the men come in and out of the women's lives, Marianne and Lark and Robin's lives, but in very different ways than we're used to. Um, I, I hoped you could talk a little bit about those relationships as well. Yeah, all three of the, the women, so Marianne is the mother and Lark and Robin are the sisters, they all do have relationships with men and they are they're important to them, but they're also kind of, un, un, I guess you could say unconventional, um, at least in the kind of old fashioned way that people used to think about these relationships. So Marianne is a, is a single mother and she's someone who is really rebelling against uh, a very rigid background and set of gender expectations of her, of her era. Some readers have described her to me as not the most sympathetic character because she's not a very caring and nurturing sort of maternal figure. But um, I see her as someone who is really trying to assert herself in the world and kind of find freedom. And so she has these relationships with men that aren't necessarily very very satisfying, but I don't know that the role models that she had in terms of, you know, married parents who 
uh, didn't have the best relationship, like those aren't necessarily great either. So I think a lot of what the women in the book are trying to do with their relationships with men is see if they can find another model, another way of being uh, with men, and they don't always succeed, but they're, they're pushing against, you know, the kind of limitations of what a relationship can be. So for Robin, She's a she's a very independent character. Um, she is very wild. She's very uninterested in being tied down uh, in traditional ways. And so she winds up really developing a set of quite fulfilling, but not monogamous, I guess, relationships or like, you know, people who are like in some kind of interstitial, like friend plus something else zone. And she almost is a, she has almost like a tribal view of relationships. Like she's just going to gather together a bunch of people and who are going to be of importance to her. And it's not going to be a one-on-one -on -one thing. And um, she's very successful in that, I think, by the end of, of the book. And then Lark winds up um, really blurring the boundaries between her professional and personal lives like that's kind of the issue that she faces from her very first college boyfriend who really teaches her what it's like to be an intellectual to a filmmaker that she winds up working with later on she can't seem to separate the ways in which she admires men intellectually and also um, finds herself emotionally implicated with them so for her she has this kind of lifelong journey to try to figure out how to be uh, sort of by herself in every in every sense of of what that means, like professionally, personally, romantically, and stand on her own two feet, as it were. Yeah, you mentioned Marianne, and and there's such a, a push pull in the, in the book between um, the relationships that Lark and Robin want to have with their mom. They go from kind of pushing her away completely and saying, you know, this isn't going to be for us. To you know, at times they they go back and forth into her life. And I, I'm always interested in how mother-daughter relationships are written because I think there's so many tropes around those as well. Were you thinking of those tropes as you were looking at that, those relationships? I was thinking about those tropes a little bit. I mean, one of the things that I have often found kind of dissatisfying in other cultural artifacts, you know, books and films are the ways in which mothers can be either idealized or demonized. And that um, I think it creates a very confining and claustrophobic set of uh, social expectations for women. Like if you are a mother, uh, it becomes the predominant part of your identity or that you have to be um, completely self you have to give yourself over. And if you don't do that, um, then you are somehow selfish or a bad mother, right? All of these kinds of like almost fairy tale tropes of, of, of mothers as either, you know, villains or angels, I think are just incredibly limiting. So Marianne is um, a figure who is, she's a very complicated mother and she's a, a woman who is a mother, but who also very much has her own needs. So she's very challenging for her, for her daughters. Um, and as, as children and adolescents, as I think we often do, they, they really kind of reject her or they just, um, they demonize her. They think of her as like a terrible person and they, they basically run away from home and, and uh, set up shop or set up a home by themselves uh, without her. And so it's a really forceful rejection of her. But as they grow older, and again, I think this is pretty uh, common situation, they start to maybe understand her a little bit better or see her in a more fully dimensional way. And they start to understand what a difficult position she was put in as a, she's basically a teenage mother. And by the time they realize that they could lose her as her health suffers in, in middle age, 
they start to articulate, especially Lark, what exactly she, she means to them and to be able to accept that flawed as she is, she is um, hugely important to them. So it's a journey, I guess, towards, I don't really think of it as like a redemption arc, but I see it as one where their understanding of their own mother becomes more and more nuanced as they grow up and as they make their own mistakes and realize that you know, she certainly wasn't perfect, but neither are they. Yeah. I've heard you describe the the upbringing of um, Lark and Robin as kind of feral. And as they were trying to, I think, looking for stability, it seemed like they clung to each other for sure. But then they kind of looked for these other things in their lives to help form a bit of a backbone and foundation. And for Lark, that was film. And for Robin, it kind of ebbed and flowed a little bit from from piano to wolves. And I was I was interested in I think I guess the research that went into the their passions because it was so interesting. The film part in particular was really fascinating, but also the interest around pianos and all that. The barn of pianos. I wish I could go see that. It sounds so cool. <laughs> Uh, the barn of pianos is based on a real barn of pianos, actually. So in theory, one could go in and uh, and see it if the person would let you in. It's based on there's a um, musician, a singer that I really love uh, named Nico Case. And she was with the band Destroyer um, for a while and also performs on her own. She just has an incredibly gorgeous voice. And I have listened to all of her songs over and over again while writing every single one of her books, uh, every single one of my books. I was listening to an interview with her where she talked about a barn that she had in Vermont and how she would basically rescue these uh, pianos and um, and play music out there. And um, you can hear on one of her CDs, a kind of nature soundtrack of like, you can hear, you know, frogs and the wind and the kind of ambient sounds of the outdoors. And she wove that into her music. And I always love that. So the scene in, in my book is a bit of a, a salute to, to Nico Case on that front. But in general, I find um, doing this kind of research to be one of the most enjoyable parts of uh, novel writing. And it's a chance to really make excursions into other worlds that you wouldn't necessarily get to live yourself. So with piano, I mean, I was a very um, casual and mediocre uh, piano student myself growing up so I know enough about it to you know know what it's like to take piano lessons but um, to write a little bit more specifically and concretely about it I was um, able to do interviews with some people that I know who are much more serious and, and dedicated and to learn what it's like to be a student at Juilliard or um, the kind of rigidity of classical music education and how some people respond well to it and some people uh, really find it difficult and constraining. Those were all themes that I wove into uh, the book and, and my portrayal of Robin. So it's not just like this background of facts that you then put up as a tapestry behind your characters. It really winds up um, intersecting with your understanding of the characters themselves and, and their journey. The same thing with wolves. I had the opportunity to go to uh, a wolf preserve uh, in Pennsylvania a few years ago. And I was very fascinated. I mean, the, the animals themselves are beautiful and charismatic and uh, a little bit threatening and very musical. And I was drawn to that, but even more so I was, I was drawn to the personalities of these people who had decided to make their own wolf preserve, which is a very particular and idiosyncratic way to spend your time. And it was like this couple who just really loved wolves and they had sunk all of their money into this frankly semi dilapidated wolf preserve in Pennsylvania. And I was like, 
these people are very interesting in terms of their life choices. And um, so I, I got to spend some time with them and think about what kind of person is so drawn to animals, to wildness, to caretaking, um, that they would spend their whole lives and all of their money and their time uh, on it. And, and that was super, super interesting. Uh, with Lark and her journey with film, um, that was an opportunity for me to kind of deepen and testify to a, a passion that I have. I love film. I studied a little bit. My father taught film a lot. Um, so uh, movies were a big part of my, my childhood and they've always been a kind of uh, escape and, and refuge for me. So it was fun to... Um, write little valentines to some of my own favorite films like there's um uh there's a a reference to um the films of kiristami and uh his his movie close up and also certified copy of love both of those films and they happen to work really well with a lot of themes of like doubling and um what's natural and what's not natural or what's real and what's not real which were um metaphors that i felt were relevant to the book. So it's just this way of like adding additional texture or, or layers as well as writing out of a passion of my own. When you're researching, is it happen like just when you're doing a particular project or are you someone who's like kind of always got an outward lens and you're kind of collecting information that you think one day this could make it into a book? Of, of all of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty slapdash and chaotic when it comes to research. I'm not systematic at all. And I know some people, like people who write historical novels, they must spend a lot of time like in archives gathering information. And I have no head for facts. I honestly can't remember any nonfiction I've ever read. It just doesn't work that way for me. And but that said, I sometimes get into a state when I'm writing a novel or a story and a teacher of mine once described it to me as like your brain becomes really sticky like you have a sticky brain and when you walk around pieces of the world stick to you uh, and that's an image that's always uh, stuck with me because that's exactly what it feels like sometimes you you're just in a state of receptivity where ideas will cling to you and will gain traction inside your your mind and so when I'm looking for um, something to flesh out a novel, I will often be, I don't know, reading or listening to the news or um, talking to other people. And I'm like, oh, that's gonna stick. That just feels exactly right. And will will somehow be uh, ingrained into the, the texture of this book. I also go, I go down a lot of digressions and uh, rabbit holes that don't wind up making their way into the book. I mean, Lark was originally not gonna be a filmmaker. She was gonna be a scientist because I had this whole idea that counterposing science and music was perfectly oppositional and it was gonna be this counterpoint and um, these would be radically different sisters. And I, I spent a whole summer like reading about artificial intelligence and cloning and I just couldn't make it work. Like it really didn't stick within the book. It didn't fit the texture, it didn't fit my aesthetic as a writer and everything that I tried to write that came out of that research was hopelessly wooden and stilted. And I eventually had to um, realize that it just wasn't working. And 
all of that research that I did on cloning wound up shrinking down to, there's like three sentences in the final book that are about a, a documentary that Lark winds up making that is um, related to this topic. So it's still in there in like the tiniest, tiniest sliver of itself. Anyway, so once I found the idea of writing about film, I realized that not only was I enjoying the research much more and the reading that I was doing, but it had a kind of liftoff it had a kind of feeling of being more than itself or of bringing energy into the book. And it felt like something that could connect more organically with my own background and things that I really care about. And suddenly all this writing about films was just kind of flowing out of me. And I was like, okay, this fits. This can not just be something that I have found out in the world, but it's something that feels like it can also belong to me in my work. One of the themes that I, I've heard you talk about with this book, but just in, in, talking with you this morning that's kind of come up again is around belonging but also like I was reading an essay that talked about twinship recently and how there are like our you know twins that are born genetic twins but sometimes we're out like looking for twinship in the world and we look for that in friendships and and other places as well and I I read that this week just after I, I finished my reread of the book and I was like oh man like that totally that totally connects with what's happening in the book but also I found with Lark and Robin they were kind of constantly looking outwards too for that a twinship that that mirrored what they had with each other yeah I love that you brought that up I love that image of, of twinship or that language that you're bringing into the the conversation uh, I always um, have this moment of recognition I, I don't know if you've seen this but often I will see like well before the pandemic when we used to see more people out in the world and on the street I would often see um, a pair of uh, it's usually teenage girls or young women and they are um, obviously very very, very close friends and they're out doing something together and they're always dressed in exactly the same outfit but often it's like an outfit that is meant to signal like individualism or rebelliousness and then I think it's really funny because I'm like but you're with somebody else who's dressed in exactly the same way I did it too you know myself and it was sort of like well here we are together uh developing our you know aesthetic and I'm in my Doc Martens and my you know leather jacket and my choker and so are you my best friend <laughs> who is also an iconoclast who happens to look exactly the same as I do uh so I I do think there's something really important about about finding these these doubles, these uh, these twins, um, as you're as you're trying to figure out, you know what your style is, what your ambitions are, what your values are. So for Lark and Robin, they don't just do it with each other. They're always encountering other kind of doubles or, or doppelgangers, also prospective like parents or mentors. They're always like trying to, they're bouncing off other people like, like pinballs and then sometimes like bouncing away from them because it was so uh, disastrous and, and other times really finding points of connection that feel very important to them. So yeah, they're definitely not only finding it with each other. They're finding it um, in lots of other people as well. Yeah, I even liked like the the metaphors that kind of came up around the characters, like the magpie for Lark, and then I mean the wolves kind of represented a lot with with who Robin was in many ways, and those kind of the twinship also like beyond humans was interesting as well. Yeah, I don't think there's any reason why it has to be limited to to another human being, right? A lot of people find their sense of of self through connection to something that feels bigger, 
right? I think as humans, we do have a, a strong need to be part of something bigger, bigger, whether it's something through our work or our family or activism or, or something else. And um, for Robin, her strongest emotional connections that she that she has are with the wolves and um, they really speak to her of, um, yeah, they're, they're pack animals, which, which she is in a very unconventional way. She's a pack animal. And some of them are also loners. They're, they're animals that are, um, they are travelers. They always need to be on the move. And um, they do this, this harmonizing together. That's, that's really important to them as a form of communication and expression. And so everything about them, I think um, she feels understood by them and that she understands them um, to a much greater extent than she does and other more human forms of, of interaction or more civilized forms of interaction. Thanks so much to Alex for being on the podcast. And thanks as always to you, our listeners, for subscribing and listening to Writing the Coast. If you want to learn more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, you should check out our website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. You'll also want to find us on social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. On those accounts, you'll find updates about our shortlists and as well as some special events that are coming up soon. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Anne-Marie Mitten, the Executive Director of the historic Joy Kagawa House. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.